Corporation is a global think tank, which launched in 1948, the original purpose of providing analysis to the U.S. military, and now conducts research and analysis for governments, universities, and other organizations from all over the world. RAND's policy interests include children and families, national security, and health and health care, among many other issues. RAND's health-related research is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's departments of statistics and media, journalism, and film, and the American Statistical Association, our regular panelists, our Department of Statistics Chair John Baylor and Department of Media, Journalism, and Film Chair Richard Campbell. Today's guest is Bonnie Ghosh-Dostadar. She's a senior statistician and director of the Statistical Advisory Center at RAND. Ghosh-Dostadar's work has examined issues related to HIV as well as population health, and recent research has examined how neighborhood-level changes in health behaviors impacts health outcomes. Bonnie, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Rosemary, for that introduction. Could you just take a moment to tell us a little bit about how you got started at RAND? Uh, Absolutely. So um, when I graduated from Penn State with a PhD, I realized that um, I I was a fairly extroverted person and I wanted to be in a field where I felt that I was having impact. Mm. And that just meant that rather than being upstream where one could be doing theoretical work, that my natural instinct was to be doing more applied hands-on kind of work and I would be interested in communication and dissemination. And that's when I came upon RAND and its expansive portfolio of work in health, criminal justice, civil justice, environment, to name a few. So then I realized that that was probably a good fit for my interest. Uh, it's, it, and it looks like, given some of the stuff that you shared with us, that, that it's been a very productive uh, stop for you. I'm, but we, we're really intrigued at this idea of, of the work that you've done in food deserts. So, so maybe just as a, a starting question, what is a food desert? So, John, a food desert, sometimes you'll see it covered in kind of the newspapers or, or New York Times, has become a fairly popular topic. Um, food deserts are areas that lack, lack access to affordable foods, vegetables, whole grains, and other kinds of healthy foods that make up the full range of a healthy diet in the U.S. For example, uh, 23.5 million people live in low-income areas that are more than a mile from a supermarket or a large grocery store. Uh, that is to say that about 24 million people lack kind of direct or immediate access to healthy foods. In addition, these, these neighborhoods are often kind of swamped or saturated with smaller neighborhood stores, which may carry foods that are considered less healthy and that more sweetened and processed foods that are not particularly good for your diet and health. I was going to ask, how, how, how do you make that distinction between healthy and unhealthy? Uh, when you're doing a survey like that. I'm um, thinking I'm thinking of a food like frosted mini wheats, <laughs> which you put sugar on a whole grain. So what do you do yeah. with something like that? Yeah. So I think it's a good question. And, and one of the things maybe this helps uh, to get at that is why do they matter? Why, why do food deserts matter? And how do you define healthy and unhealthy? Some of it is a little bit, I would say, can be arbitrary or a little mm-hmm. subjective. But in general, I think what has focused interest in this issue of food desert is really this obesity epidemic Mm -hmm. that we have seen Mm -hmm. in the U.S. Um, Some of the uh, statistics I've seen out of the National Center for Health Statistics is I think about a third, like 37% of U.S. adults have obesity. And in terms of dollar estimates, um, 
these are a little bit outdated, I, I would warn you. It was um, estimated at about $148 billion in 2008 U.S. dollars. So the idea being, okay, obesity is an issue. People um, in low-income areas, if you were to map this out, are, are having particularly negative outcomes, including high rates of obesity that are related to health conditions. And there's an extensive body of evidence that links certain kinds of foods, like um, foods that uh, more negatively impact health outcomes versus healthy foods, which are the types of foods um, that actually positively impact your health. So I think that's really the broader classification that exists in the nutrition literature that we're using to classify foods as healthy or less healthy, um, rather than maybe an absolute label like absolutely unhealthy. You know, So you could maybe look at them relatively as what's good for you versus what's maybe less beneficial to your health. Okay, very good. So when you're doing studies like this to, to look at, at the impact of food deserts on health, what are what are some of the ways that you explore that? So in our case, John, um, in particular, what we've been very interested in is what is being done around this food desert issue and, and to impact health outcomes. So one of the areas, one of the strategies that um, the government and policy initiatives have focused on is to bring supermarkets to food deserts to allow for greater access to healthy foods or like fresh produce, whole grains or, you know, low-fat milk, things that we take for granted, many of us. But just to have a better uh, source for these types of foods in areas that have historically lacked one or lacked one in the last 20 to 30 years. So since, for example, one, one such policy initiative is the Healthy Food Financing Initiative, since 2011, the federal government has invested more than $500 million through one-time funding assistance in efforts that include the opening of food service supermarkets in, in food deserts. Um, so that's really the kind of work that's being done. In our case, what we uh, pursue to do is kind of answer this important policy question, like, do these policy initiatives have an impact ultimately on the outcomes you care about, that is diet? your food purchasing habits and practices, as well as health outcomes such as BMI, body mass index, and obesity. So in order to do that, what we've done is focused on rigorously designed studies uh, that can help us kind of get at more direct evidence at answering this question, as in, if you transform a food desert, if you try to put in place policy initiatives to help these food deserts, which have become so important in the policy landscape, then what is the outcome? And mind you, um, the policy initiative I mentioned, uh, our Healthy Food Financing Initiative, that's actually quite big in Pennsylvania. Um, this is part of, I think, Michelle Obama's uh, sort of um, broader policy sort of outreach to ensure equity in foods and, and healthy diet across the, across the country. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. The topic today is statistical research into health behaviors and outcomes. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me are panelists, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media, Journalism, and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. Our special guest is Rand Senior Statistician Bonnie Ghosh-Dastadar. Bonnie, you were talking about sort of your work on food deserts, and I'm wondering if the work that you're doing, um, I'm assuming on these deserts that exist now, is giving you sort of the tools to be able to predict where these kinds of deserts might develop in the future. So, Rosemary, to be honest, that's not exactly our work. I mean, mm -hmm. although that is interesting and, and that work exists, our particular focus is really what we've done is taken 
two food deserts in Pittsburgh, um, Hill District and Homewood, and designed a natural experiment to mm-hmm. understand and kind of follow a neighborhood through change. So look at it pre-intervention, then, then look at sort of when a supermarket opens, you know, how that transforms, and, and compare it to a control community where there's an absence of a, of a supermarket throughout that period, and compare the two to understand in a more rigorous setting as to is opening a supermarket ultimately good for the neighborhood and its residents. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're using terms that are that are common in some groups, but maybe not so familiar with others. And so I'm going to ask you to, to, to define for, for kind of our general listener the idea of what, is, what do you mean by designing an, an experiment? So what, is, what does design mean in this context? And you also said natural experiment. So uh, just, just to, to kind of expand on those two points, please. Yes. So the design of experiments suggests that can you create a, a setting where um, you can attribute the effect of a change or an intervention in this case, the intervention being neighborhood-level change to bring in a supermarket in an area that didn't have one. So can you design sort of a rigorous – can you set up um, such, a, such a setting mimicking something that you would do in the lab so that you can say that the influence of the supermarket and people's health can be pretty truly or clearly attributed to that change. So, so how we did that is if you were to do it in the lab, it would be far easier where, um, um, where one condition would be sort of turned on, one group would, would receive the intervention, the other group wouldn't. In neighborhoods, this is far, hard, far harder because neighborhoods change, and sometimes you, can't, you cannot randomly assign one group to get a supermarket or not. There are often other factors that come into play. So what we did, what we did was identify a, a prospect in, in the Pittsburgh area where a neighborhood, a very historic neighborhood, without a supermarket for 40 years was going to gain a supermarket. And so what we did was um, identify using statistical methods a matching neighborhood. We actually looked at different control neighborhoods or comparative neighborhoods. And then what we said is, all right, here is this matching neighborhood, which is not going to get a supermarket, and let's follow people in the neighborhood over time. Look at their diet, purchasing behaviors, and health outcomes over time, and then put that in direct comparison to the neighborhood that gets changed and see whether people there in the intervention neighborhood are benefited by the opening of the supermarket. And you you had a really interesting finding, right? You found that that the the diet improved right there but it wasn't because they used the store is that true is that right richard so yes so fact is when when you do something that's a bit like a pragmatic trial right because this is not a lab setting sometimes you get very mixed results so our study was one of the largest natural experiments in the sense why an experiment because we have a control group Mm -hmm. that doesn't receive the intervention uh, it's called a natural experiment, which the idea of it is it's kind of like an experiment where we didn't get to pick the neighborhood that got the intervention. So in this setting, and we had a good number of residents enrolled in both neighborhoods, we did find residents reported eating fewer calories, less sugar. They had much better perceptions about their neighborhood. And that even those perceptions seem to matter for people's health outcomes. Like, are you more satisfied with your neighborhood? Are you feeling more positively? That positivity also seems to matter ultimately for health outcomes. But when we looked, we actually captured shopping behaviors. We've tracked these people over time. And when we looked at those that were using the supermarket regularly versus those that weren't, 
the story was not so clear. People who were using the supermarkets frequently were not the ones with, with all of the kind of, you know, what we see as positive change because they, they, their diet had moved in a healthier direction, according to nutritionists. Mm-hmm. Wow. So have you been able to replicate this or will, will others replicate this study in the future, do you think? John, I think replication is really important. There have been at least two other studies before this, and they have not found the impact and outcomes that we have. So in that sense, there's a real focus and interest in ours. So it would be great to replicate in other neighborhoods or other contexts. Um, the other part is I think the evidence now is building up where there's, where there's more and more consensus that opening a supermarket is not going to have sufficient impact, you know, to have the kind of impact on health and diet that we want. And then the third part is we actually have continued funding. We applied for a grant because what we realized was everything that hypothesized about a very linear sort of transition, people are going to get a supermarket, they're going to start using the supermarket, their outcomes are going to get better, didn't play out. So now we're looking at alternate mechanisms like, impact on people's socioeconomics. What does kind of opening a supermarket do, you know, to your income and, and, and other sorts of optimism and hopefulness and maybe ultimately changes your knowledge and attitudes about diet? So we are looking at alternate mechanisms that could be influencing the outcomes because we found that use of the supermarket is not what mattered. And then we are also... Given that it was, you know, our, our findings happened, our findings were measured directly after the supermarket opened. We're also tracking these residents over a longer time, both to see a long-term effect, but also to see a more stable effect. Because, you know, right after a store opens, some people who have better intent or higher intentions may show up. Some may not even be fully aware or may not have, you know, they may be creatures of habit, not switched over. So, over several years, I think we have a better chance of detecting what is a more stable effect of such a change. Mm-hmm. So it's, it sounds like your, your work then is, is a challenge somewhat, this, this public policy initiative of pushing. Yes. Yeah. So how, is, how has it been received? So, you know, in general, the National Institutes for Health, which is our funder, has been very interested in the results and in pursuing sort of um, our sort of alternate mechanism theories are, are pursuing and investing in further work. As far as the policy environment go, people are both very enthusiastic about the outcome, but they also realize our message has been that the, that the analysis and evaluations are around these neighborhood changes are fairly complex. One is, you know, it's a neighborhood level change. We are not actually investing in people directly to, you know, whether they adopt the supermarket or not. So those individual-level interventions are different than neighborhood-level interventions where you place the supermarket but ultimately have no control over people's use. So so that's one aspect of it that a neighborhood-level change sort of is put harder to measure and kind of define what is exposure of people. The second thing we're doing, John, is understanding better as to how to capture people's exposure to the supermarket, like, are we doing a good job? Have we asked the right questions about who's a user versus who's not? Mm. And then the, then the third part is, on the policy side, we've also like examined other aspects that may be influencing people's sort of attitudes and diet, et cetera. For example, uh, the food environment, what we're finding is apart from opening this, the um, advertisement, pricing of food, all of those can be really 
sort of important factors in what drives people's decisions. So we've sort of issued a message that the story is much more, you know, even though there's promise, it's far more complex. We need to explore alternative mechanisms into neighborhoods. And something so simple as just placing a supermarket and and expecting that that things will change exactly the way you want is, is perhaps a little bit even naive or should not be expected to be replicated, that that perhaps some other studies are, are needed. But replication and a larger scale study in multiple neighborhoods, I think would always be really, really welcome to see if we can find the same, same sort of outcomes or improvements elsewhere. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and our discussion today is looking at health research. Bonnie, you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that you uh, wanted to work at RAND because it felt like a place where maybe your research could have impact. You're really interested in the implied aspect of research. So how do you know if the research you're doing on HIV or food deserts um, or other kinds of, of things is having an impact? So, Rosemary, this is a daily struggle, <laughs> meaning, you know, research research by definition, I think, is a little bit sometimes separate from, from people. Mm-hmm. I think that's just my image of a researcher is a little bit introverted, a little bit at their desk. Part of the reason I'm doing this podcast today is I'm thinking, well, that's a way to get the message out of what our work is about, the mm-hmm. fact that these neighborhood-level changes and interventions are both difficult to measure and complex as they play out. There's changes often simultaneous. A lot of other things could be changing in people's lives and neighborhoods, right? So um, the other other part about impact is we try very hard, at least in a place like RAND, we have uh, sort of different sort of groups and departments that help us get the message out, be it to the Congress, you know, uh, do regular sort of meetings and briefings. We try to get the word out through um, discussions with stakeholders. In this particular study in Pittsburgh, we also have a great deal of community engagement that I think is mm-hmm. extremely important for researchers to get the message out. Because not only do you want to study this population, you want to think about how are you helping them, right? What What is it that they want to learn and what is it that they want to achieve for their community? So having that partnership, a community-based sort of participation research, um, angle to the study has ensured the success of the study. We have very good retention. Um, we are able to track people for a very long time. But again, to both have that input and provide feedback and get kind of, you know, what kind of questions should we be answering? What is happening qualitatively speaking in the community? I think is really important. So that level of impact, I think, is what's going to shape sort of how this work gets put into practice and, and the impact of this is ultimately how it helps people living in these communities. So, Bonnie, part of part of getting the word out to the public is going to depend on how journalists interpret your work and how they reflect that in the stories they tell. So, how how did that work out? Because the the findings in this are kind of complicated. I mean, I, this could be misread in a number of ways. I would think. So, um, I'm partly what I'm asking here. Are uh, sort of tips for how journalists can do a better job, uh, and how this work was interpreted by journalists. Yeah. So, so Richard, I mean, just recently, I was I did an um, interview, and then I stepped back for a podcast. It was a journalism sort of podcast because I felt that the message was almost too complicated. So, I was a little bit almost fearful that I would misstate, but that's really not a good reason to step back to open and engage in, in more discussion is, is better. So, for example, um, what we've 
said is that our work shows some positive impact. Opening a supermarket is about equity and social justice. You know, the equity in food access, I think, is, is a powerful motivation in itself. Mm-hmm. But beware, these outcomes don't play out for the reasons you would expect, that, that there are other things going on. So until we can do that, until we can replicate these results, until we can sort of, you know, this next grant we're looking at to see what has changed simultaneously, we're collecting all kinds of measures in the neighborhood, simultaneous investments, people's attitudes and people's sort of these issues like hope, hopefulness. So, the, so we have an outcome, but we don't understand why it works. That means that this policy initiative did not play out the way it was supposed to. So I think we, we've put out the statement that this health policy initiative, just as it is, is not going to work. That message was clearly put out. But why it, wor- why it works in impacting the outcomes, maybe in alternate ways, is not understood. And that's where I think replication is really, mm-hmm. really important. Um, trying to have, you know, kind of identifying an alternative mechanism. Until we do that, there's actually no risk. So, um, so the message is nuanced, but I think it can still be made. You know, there are pieces that are more black and white. Mm-hmm. And from that, we have to separate a very kind of optimistic sort of naive solution is not going to work, I think, in this case, to improve something as difficult to change as people's diet, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you you hit on something that I was curious about, and that is the some of the other variables that might be important, some of the confounders that are in the community. You know, I, I would wonder if if perhaps the the presence of the grocery might matter to people of a certain age versus other people. You know, maybe it's more important for older consumers than younger consumers. Maybe the presence of certain fast food restaurants might make it so that it doesn't matter whether you open it or not for certain for certain groups. I, I just can can easily imagine that there are lots of other really important important factors or important variables in play that might determine whether or not this is a this is an important addition to a community for some for some members of that community. Yes, that's right, John. And I think the one thing that you point out that's always or def- or many times true for population health is there's also not a one size fits all, right? Like to the point you're you're the point you're making is, are there certain segments of the population you know, that improved or received particular benefit? Maybe segments that are not able to leave the neighborhood, right? That don't have access to a car that perhaps sure. were particularly disadvantaged because they had no means or, or limited means to get out of the neighborhood. And that's exactly the sort of analysis we are doing now is looking at the effect in, in different subgroups. Some yeah. of the more obvious ones, like age groups, like Households with and without children, we have some male respondents or primary food shoppers, and the rest are women, but we've compared males to females. We haven't found the clear patterns that we would like to have found, because that would make it for a nice type story that, you know, we found this impact, and for this particular group, this set of data and this set of results is, is, is just proving to be really hard in that sense. But now we're looking at more subtle kind of differences or other sort of distinguishing factors that may have some clues as to why did why did the diet improve overall? We're also going to do another round of data collection this year, 2018, um, starting around May into the fall, in which we'll see are these sustained. You know, was it just a blip, like a like an immediate and a short-term effect of the supermarket? People were positive, and, and something there happened that was even an anomaly. Mind you, we did use pretty stringent measurement protocol, like the 24-hour diet recall. 
But diet is notoriously hard to measure, you know? So we are doing kind of additional measurements to see even within the same group, can this be replicated? So I think, John, I mean, you mentioned the word replication. I think that's really important to understand. Are these findings sort of consistent and do they hold when assessed again? Really, really interesting challenges that, that, you, that you have there. I mean, one of the things that you, you talk about whenever you're doing this type of work are some of the limitations that studies have and, you know, some of the, the challenges of, of kind of trying to attribute the, the intervention as being causally impacting some endpoint. Can you talk a little bit about some of the limitations that, to the studies that, that you conducted here and, and why is that important to communicate? So, John, are you in particular uh, alluding to the fact that this is a natural experiment rather than a randomized kind of experiment, and what are some of the limitations of it? I'm I'm lobbing to the net and letting you slam it any way you'd like, Bonnie. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, some of the really hard questions here. So, mind you, when you want to attribute change to something that, that, to an intervention, to, to, an investment, then you need to argue that this change was not just a time trend, like, because a lot of things are simultaneously changing over time, attitudes and beliefs and even knowledge about diet, right? Uh, Even maybe national obesity trends are are flattening. So having this control and intervention neighborhood and making sure they're well-matched was important. But then we match on what's kind of observed or known about these groups. Like, we know that both of these neighborhoods are predominantly African-American, about 93% 93% are African-American. We know they're similarly matched in age groups, but there are other differences about people that drive behaviors and, and outcomes. And the point is, one, I think, key question that matters is, are, are, are these, well, several key questions matter is, so from the statistical perspective, that's what I would call study design, how well the control and intervention communities are matched and, you know, are they, are they truly comparable? And that's where... There are statistical tools and methods like life propensity score or econometric methods like instrumental variables that we are kind of, I don't know if the word's playing, but maybe we are enjoying it enough to call it play that we're working with to see, like, if you analyze a certain data set in different ways, you still get at the same results. And that is a kind of replication. But now the replication is being subject to different kind of tools that we have as methodologists in our power. We're also very curious as to whether our measure of exposure is sufficiently sensitive, meaning did we measure use of the supermarket sufficiently well? You know, are we measuring like change in the neighborhood? We're just calling one intervention control, but there's so much else that could sort of affect, you know, people's access to the supermarket. Are we picking that up? So we are developing better measures of exposure. The other part we're doing is as time goes on, neighborhoods will change, people will change. So in this new grant, we have been collecting information and data using secondary sources, meaning like housing permits in the neighborhood, looking at public investments, newspaper articles about what changed in these two communities at the same time? Um, we know simultaneously that quite a bit of housing investment has been going on. In addition, there's been some investment in, in green space and parks and playgrounds. So, so to understand how to incorporate both derive these measures, a lot is about measurement, but then to be able to model sort of these simultaneous changes that are happening in these neighborhoods and connect them to people, you know, as well as make sure that people's exposure to these Neighborhood changes are sufficiently and sensitively picked up, I think, are 
interesting key challenges, and that's where we're at, where we're looking at different ways to analyze this data. Again, to see, are, are our results robust, as in, do they still hold up to scrutiny? Bonnie, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. Stay tuned and keep following us on iTunes and Twitter if you'd like to share your thoughts on the program. Send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.